0: Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by & Mooring. We're your co-hosts, Mona Lombardo and Jason Crawford, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. Today we're joined by special guests, Trina Fairley-Barlow and Christine Haas. Trina is a partner in the & Mooring Labor and Employment and Government Contracts groups, where a substantial part of her practice is focused on helping government contractors navigate the various employment-related laws, regulations, and executive orders which impact government contracts. And Christine is counsel in the firm's Labor and Employment Group, where she has an active litigation and counseling practice focused on a wide range of employment laws, including defending companies against allegations of retaliation under the False Claims Act. Welcome, Trina and Christine. Glad to have you joining us today.
1: Good afternoon. Thanks for having us.
2: We've invited Trina and Christine to today's podcast to discuss the unique considerations and challenges that companies face investigating or defending False Claims Act allegations brought by whistleblowers. As many of our listeners know, the vast majority of FCA lawsuits are initiated by whistleblowers, or tam relators, as they're referred to under the statute. In fiscal year 2017, approximately 800 new FCA cases were filed, and almost 85% of those were brought by a relator. In practice, this means that it's not uncommon for companies to be facing both allegations of fraud and allegations of employment discrimination in cases where a whistleblower is a current or former employee. Of course, there are other occasions when a whistleblower has not yet filed a lawsuit, but they've raised internal concerns that the company must investigate while being mindful not to take actions that could be perceived as discriminating against the whistleblower. To get us started, Trina, can you give us a sense of some of the different ways that clients can learn of whistleblower concerns or allegations?
3: Sure, Jason. A couple ways. The most common way, of course, is complaints through human resources or through the ethics and compliance function or department at a company. This is where robust policies and reinforcement through training is really important so that people know that human resources and ethics are a resource for reporting such concerns. Another way that complaints are received is through hotlines. Many companies set up hotlines, frequently through vendors That include toll-free numbers and or online tools for making complaints, including anonymous complaints. Another less obvious way, though, that companies receive complaints from whistleblowers is in the regular course of business. For example, you may have a compliance officer or a legal officer who is raising concerns during the course of their job, and the company may think that the individual is just doing their job rather than making a bona fide complaint. While courts have said that people in these types of roles need to do more than just raise issues of noncompliance, needless to say, this is an area where companies should be careful and particularly mindful because they may not understand the intent with which a person is raising a business concern. And then lastly, government investigations is a way that an employer or a company may find out about a whistleblower complaint. But here, of course, it's in many ways a different ballgame altogether because the complaint is already external at that point.
0: So, Trina, if the whistleblower is still employed at the company, what steps should the company take when investigating the allegations, and will outside counsel typically interview the whistleblower?
3: It's a good question, Mona. I mean, some of the steps are the same regardless of whether the whistleblower is still employed, but in all cases, you want to conduct a thorough, timely, and fair investigation. It's also, though, important to define the scope of the investigation particularly where there are concurrent or prior investigations of a related or underlying FCA claim. For example, maybe phase one of the investigation involved the underlying FCA claim, but you're handling phase two, which may be a separate retaliation claim. You'll wanna be sure not to conflate the issues and not to touch on issues that are outside the scope of your investigation. And finally, you wanna be careful that if you're reaching conclusions that are inconsistent with a prior investigation, You don't wanna do that without reconciling or understanding why your conclusions are different. Finally, it's important to give some thought to who's going to be on the investigation team. The investigation team may only include lawyers or maybe you might need a forensic accountant or or another consultant. At the outset of all of these investigations and then at the end, it is critical to remind all witnesses of the company's zero tolerance, anti-retaliation policies I think, too, it's really important to tell people what zero tolerance means at your company. People may not fully understand that. And to give some examples of the type of conduct that might be retaliatory. And in terms of whether you should interview the whistleblower, there's an art to this. When you do interview the whistleblower, though, make sure your questions are broad, open-ended in the first instance so that you're not over-informing the whistleblower and giving them information that they didn't otherwise have. And then, Mana, on your last question about whether or not to involve outside counsel, I think that that's a fact-intensive question, no size fits all. I think it depends on the type of potential exposure, who the whistleblower is, what the claims involve. But certainly, if you involve outside counsel, it certainly can create a greater perception of independence, which can help the whistleblower and the workforce more generally understand that you're taking the complaint very seriously.
2: Thanks, Trina. On the topic of outside counsel, how do we typically respond if the whistleblower is the one who wants an attorney present for the interview?
3: That's a good question, Jason. Typically, our advice is in the ordinary course of business, you can have an employee participate in an investigation without having counsel present. That's again where your policies are going to come into play if you have good policies that require employees to participate and personnel investigations on the other hand there may be a situation where the employee has already retained counsel in connection with the issue that you're going to be interviewing them on there may be ethical obligations particularly for a legal counsel not to speak with that person without consulting an attorney so again it's fact intensive but you'll want to analyze these issues very carefully before proceeding
2: thanks i'll toss the next question to christine In terms of whistleblower protections, could you provide the listening audience with an overview of what elements a plaintiff needs to prove in order to prevail on an FCA retaliation action?
1: Absolutely. There are essentially three elements that a plaintiff has to prove to win a retaliation claim in the FCA context. First, they have to demonstrate that they engaged in what's called protected activity. And what that means in the FCA context is that they undertook lawful acts in furtherance of an action under the FCA or took other efforts to stop one or more violations of the FCA. The second element is that the plaintiff must demonstrate that the employer was put on notice that the employee was actually engaging in protected activity. So the employer needs to know that the employee was making a protected complaint. And the third element is that the plaintiff must demonstrate that they were subject to an adverse employment action that was a result of the protected activity.
0: So the phrase in furtherance of an FCA action is ambiguous enough that it has been the subject of regular litigation. Nina, can you tell us a little bit about how the courts have interpreted the phrase?
3: Sure, Mana. It certainly is not the case that a whistleblower must have filed a tam action or reported the concern to the government. And furtherance of has been interpreted to mean essentially that litigation is, quote, what's called a distinct possibility or that the complaint could lead to a viable FCA action. So again, the obvious situations or cases is where someone has already filed a key tame action or has reported to the government, but whistleblower activity could also include just an internal complaint, as long as it's based on the whistleblower's objectively reasonable belief that the employer was violating the FCA. It's not sufficient for the employee to just imagine or believe that there is some wrongdoing or fraud. Like Christine said, the key is that whatever the whistleblower does, it needs to be sufficient to put the employer on notice of a potential FCA action. So just a quick example. For example, general complaints about accounting irregularities is typically not enough. On the other hand, allegations of alleged mischarging to the government may certainly be enough. Thanks,
0: Trina. So jumping from there to other elements of an FCA retaliation action. Back in 2009, as part of the FIRA amendments to the FCA, the definition of protected activity expanded such that it now covers other efforts to stop one or more violations of the FCA. So in practical terms, Christine, can you tell us what this amendment has meant for the way these cases are litigated?
1: Sure, Mana. What we're seeing post fara is that there are a lot more cases where whistleblowers or people who claim that they're whistleblowers might not have raised any formal complaint at all, but later claim after they're terminated or otherwise face employment action, they claim that in the ordinary course of business, they were trying to undertake efforts to stop what they saw as FCA violations. In reality, courts looking at this issue between whether an employee has taken efforts to stop a violation of the FCA and whether they've taken actions in furtherance of an action under the FCA, there's not a huge difference in the way that courts look at that. The bigger issue is the timing of what the potential FCA violation might have been. Typically lawful acts and furtherance of an action under the FCA typically looks at existing FCA violations or believed FCA violations and efforts to stop one or more violations looks at whether there might be a potential future violation of the FCA. Regardless, however, under either standard, there needs to be a complaint by the employee that's based on an objectively reasonable belief of a violation, either prospectively or looking backwards.
2: So as one might imagine, these retaliation cases can be fact-dependent and somewhat messy because there will often be several explanations for an adverse action. For example, someone may have engaged in a protected activity, but they were terminated because of poor performance. Trina, what's the standard for proving causation?
3: That's an excellent question, Jason. So this issue has not been resolved yet by the Supreme Court, but certainly the majority view and the trend in the federal circuit is that the standard for proving causation is what's called the but-for standard, which means that plaintiffs must prove that they would not have been subjected to the adverse employment action but for their protected activity. So, for example... That means if there's another legitimate reason for the termination, like poor performance, then the employee would have a difficult time and would likely be unable to prove that but for causation that is required to prevail on a retaliation claim. Here again, though, that's where good documentation is key. For example, if performance issues appear suddenly, only after a whistleblower has raised a complaint, then the employer will be challenged to prove that the performance was actually the reason for the termination, or was a real factor in the termination? So it's really important to have prior records. In fact, an assertion that's raised for the first time after the whistleblower complains could backfire before a jury that might decide that the employer manufactured the evidence just to defend against the whistleblower claims. So you want to think through those sorts of issues very carefully before making and taking any employment action.
0: Thanks, Gina. So, let's talk about situations where the whistleblower is still employed by the company, but there are concerns about self-discovery, meaning that a whistleblower is actively taking company documents to use in support of a lawsuit. What can companies do to look out for this? Christine, can you let us know about that one?
1: Absolutely. The very first thing that's most important in this context is for companies to have good policies in place. That both protect company information and also ensure that the company has the right to monitor both its computer systems, email accounts, workspaces, and other areas that the company might have control over. This is really important to set the stage for the employer actually implementing these policies. And then it's also important to have procedures in place for the company to regularly monitor both computer systems, email accounts, and even physical workspaces, file cabinets, things like that, to check whether anything has gone amiss, to look for suspicious downloads or emails that go outside of the company, and then be prepared to document any issues that are discovered by either the IT team or whoever is doing this investigation, and to be prepared to cut off access to employees that may be violating policies and take other appropriate action as necessary if misconduct is observed.
2: And what recourse does a company have if it learns that a putative whistleblower has been stealing confidential and proprietary information?
1: That's a really good question, Jason. While employees have a right to report concerns that they might have about the company, they don't have the right to self-help or to unilaterally take documents from the company without permission. So a company has a number of options in order to address these concerns. The first, obviously, is to enforce its well-written policies, to protect its confidential information, and to take disciplinary action against the individual if they're still an existing employee. You might also contemplate filing counterclaims against the employee if they've already brought a whistleblower claim or if they've brought a key TAM action. You might also consider, depending on the circumstances, filing criminal charges against the employee for theft or other misconduct.
2: Thanks. Trina, you've written on the topic of confidentiality agreements and how companies must balance the need to protect their confidential information against a whistleblower's right to report fraud to the government. At a high level, can you explain, at least for the government contract space, what a company can and cannot include in a confidentiality agreement?
3: Sure, Jason. The bottom line is that contractors may not prevent or discourage employees from communicating with the government. So any language in an employee agreement or in a policy that precludes or appears to preclude employees from engaging in such communications with the government is problematic. With that said, though, there is nothing about these restrictions on confidentiality that prohibit employers from stopping employees from stealing or misusing their confidential information. Certainly, employers should, as Christine stated, monitor and take steps if necessary to limit employees' ability to steal or take confidential information in an unauthorized manner. One of the things that contractors can do is consider using carve-outs or savings clauses in policies or agreements with employees that make it clear that nothing in the in the policy or the agreement is intended to preclude the employee from communicating with the government consistent with the requirements and restrictions placed on government contractors.
0: Well, that's really great advice and practical information for the listening audience out there, thank you. So that's all for this episode. We wanna thank Trina and Christine for joining us today and sharing their thoughts on unique issues that arise in FCA matters involving whistleblowers. If you have any questions, I can be reached at 213-443-5563 and Jason at 202-624-2562. We'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash podcasts.